Welcome to the Road Safety Podcast with me, Dr. Karen McDonnell, Occupational Health and Safety Policy Advisor at ROSPA. This is a podcast that keeps driving and riding for work and managing the risk in the minds of people and businesses across Scotland. Our conversations will help you understand where driving and riding for work sits within the safe system approach and to think about new and emerging risks. This podcast is part of the work of the Scottish Occupational Road Safety Alliance project funded by Transport Scotland and delivered by ROSPA that not only contributes to Scotland's road safety framework to 2030, but also ROSPA's strategic objectives relating to those who drive or ride for work. And for listeners in the UK and wider world, the safe system and management of occupational road risk principles discussed during this podcast series can be applied wherever you are. We're back with a new series because we all have a part to play in keeping ourselves and each other safe on the roads. And today's episode is all about electric vehicles and not only cars, but also e-bikes and e-motorbikes. I'm joined by Neil Swanson, Director of the Electric Vehicle Association Scotland CIC and a member of the Scottish Occupational Road Safety Alliance Steering Group. The EVA represents the interests of electric vehicle users in Scotland and exists to represent the interests of electric vehicle users in Scotland, to promote the switching amongst non-electric vehicle users in Scotland and be the public voice of electric vehicles in the media, in politics and in government, acting as industry leaders during the phasing out of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2032. So who better to talk about EVs? So thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, today. And it is very much about getting the management of occupational road risk right and it's saving lives, very much about understanding data uh, and developing an implementation of policies that create the right conditions for success. And I suppose in the context of this conversation, it's very much about road safety related success and really the success of bringing uh, EVs onto Scotland's roads with the positive benefits they can bring. Can you just give us some insights into what making the switch and what the benefits are the EVs will bring to Scotland's roads? Yeah, well, making, making the switch is straightforward enough. Uh, moving to the, the, the nice, clean, quiet drive. And there, there are benefits, there are direct and indirect benefits. I mean, we're all used to hearing about the zero tailpipe emission one, which is the, the, the obvious one beyond doubt. We see some other things as well in terms of particulate emissions and driving style and approaches to driving style that we generally see and hear back from our members where they generally are more aware of what's going on. And one of the, the sort of less obvious benefits in an EV is that you have the reduced driver workload because it's always an automatic box. Uh, you never have to worry about being in the right gear. It just goes. And a back of that, we also have things like uh, reduced noise and vibration, which actually reduces, anecdotally, I admit at this point, there are studies underway across the world, but less fatigue in journeys than when driving an ICE vehicle just with that reduction in noise and vibration. Uh, so anecdotally, uh, we hear from dog daycare centres. Dogs are obviously much more sensitive to these things than humans. And where dog daycare centres have made the shift to EV dog transport, they're reporting their charges are generally more relaxed or even asleep in the electric vehicle, whereas in the ICE vehicle, they would spend the journey generally being unhappy. They feel it, we feel it, but we don't necessarily recognise it. So there are some really interesting benefits to explore still. I certainly think that when you mention the reduced driver workload, do you think that that would include, for example, fewer distractions within the vehicle, you know, as, as people are driving along, are there fewer distractions involved with operating an EV? 
We would argue yes, but obviously the the industry likes to fit toys to vehicles. That isn't necessarily helping. Uh, but by and large, when the driver is focused on driving, yes, it's easier. Uh, voice activation, maybe when it works. Uh, but generally when driving, most of our members have reported that they are more aware of their surroundings because there's less noise if they have you know, the window up or down. They're aware of people shouting, which may warn them of things they can't see. And they're also more aware, more aware of things like road conditions changing because you hear the tire noise rather than the vehicle noise. So you become aware and more attuned to the things that are changing that can impact your ability to drive safely and let you react in good time. Yeah, I think certainly reaction time is uh, fundamentally important. And I was just in, in prepping for um, our conversation today. Um, I was really interested in the proliferation of uh, public electric vehicle charging devices installed uh, in the UK as of January. I think there were just under 40,000 public electric vehicle charging devices. uh, And those don't include the many charge points installed at home or workplace locations. And the estimation there is about 400,000 charging points. So I thought it was important just to give that by uh, sense uh, for people who are are listening today who may not have encountered um, EVs within their sphere of influence as yet. It certainly is the case that the switch is happening and organisations really do need to think differently uh, about their fleets. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, again, we see that there are significant safety benefits uh, for the organisations that will reduce downtime and costs from accidents. A big part of that probably comes down to driver, I don't want to call it training, I want to call it awareness of the difference in the vehicle, inclusion of things like speed limiters that are much more usable at 20 miles an hour, for example, in electric vehicles, and the cost of operating the vehicle. I know at the moment we all talk about the price of energy just now in 2023, and we worry about it. Properly set up, you reduce the cost of maintenance. Uh, brakes don't wear as much. The likelihood of brake failure through component wear is dropped, and the cost of fueling the vehicle and operating it just generally drops. A lot of the organisations we've heard back from have reported that if you look at the vehicle, not over a four-year cycle, but over a six-year, seven-year cycle for leasing, for example, they are actually hitting the point where they break even on the additional costs before year three or year four, in many cases, depending on mileage, obviously. You bring in the higher energy costs. Again, that's not insurmountable. There are ways to ameliorate that a little bit. But yeah, the, the saving... And we've still to see a, a big enough number with the insurance companies, but within our members, we generally see fewer, I'm going to call them fault accidents, so you can read it any way you want. The, the majority of the accidents are caused by people hitting them or road conditions that nothing would have stopped other than choosing to stay home something we would actively encourage. Yeah, and that's certainly that meeting without moving that I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it before in this series that a colleague of mine said in 1996 about how we should try and meet without moving. And here we are uh, having another virtual session today that's going out, that will go out uh, to an audience around, around the world. So we've got these these positive attributes of uh, reduced driver workloads, reduced downtime, uh, less wear and tear. So those are all very positive things. What about barriers, if any, uh, to the adoption of EVs by organisations? Well, we've already touched there on, on the cost. That That's something that we often hear talked about. The vehicles are too expensive. Yes, you know, we've all got access, or many of us have access now, things like salary sacrifice schemes uh, that actually let you access the vehicles at a better price. 
the second-hand market is actually quite encouraging at the moment. But cost is is only really one part of that equation. And as I already said, the total cost of ownership has been shown to be lower. And we already know of fleets that are making the transition. They're making it using green credentials, but actually they're achieving financial returns. There's less maintenance, less downtime. They generally last longer. We know that the batteries, for example, are lasting out past 10 years for most vehicles, then going into second use. So, yeah. One of the things that does come into it, though, as an obstacle, is that the range of the vehicle is obviously less. It's always going to be less than something you fill with a liquid fuel. For some people, there will be a requirement for a wee change in working practices in terms of how you park up the vehicles or where people do things. We often cite it as the time to charge is when you're stopped to do something else and make use of that time. So if somebody's been out and done a job, and then they've stopped to do paperwork prep for the next job. Actually, that's the time to plug in. So making that change and educating the drivers to do that actually takes away the obstacle. But again, you're back to increasing efficiencies because that's a little bit of time recovered every day where they might be fueling a vehicle in a different way where they can't do another item of work. Again, understanding in each case what it'll be. You touched already on charging, which is something that people raise as an obstacle. And at the moment, it can be, not necessarily the charging itself as an obstacle, but people's understanding of what charging means. Everyone's very focused on charging at high power rates. Uh, They want to refuel or recharge the vehicle as quickly as possible. That isn't necessarily the right way to do it. That incurs costs. That's a a premium service. It has a high cost. Charging those vehicles off-street at home or at depot is significantly cheaper, and that's infrastructure that businesses can own and control. And again, it represents a saving overall. So there is that shift in working practices uh, and how they do things. Uh, things like people can take the vehicle home, charge it, and get paid back immediately by their employer uh, with the right infrastructure set up. We see this from the Scottish government and also the UK government, and Hopefully Wales will follow along soon behind with building regs that mandate EV charge points with new build, both uh, domestic and commercial. And then it will come in with refurb work as well, requiring the addition. We think it's a, a useful behavioural nudge, but once people get into the habit of moving to an EV and knowing that the best time to charge is when you're stopped somewhere you would normally be doing something else, they'll install them because it's a long time turn on the device. They'll win. Uh, The last thing I would probably highlight there is the resistance to change that's just a natural human thing. Uh, You know, we've had a seismic shift over the last couple of years towards this hybrid way of working. Uh, So you wonder about, you know, when that, you know, the the switch is happening to EVs. But to encourage organisations to do things differently, you know, we we sort of use the terminology safe vehicle, safe journey, uh, safe driver. How do we embed those principles when introducing EVs into a vehicle fleet, do you think? I I think the the training, I'm I'm going to come back to range. One of the things that people complain about is they have range anxiety. If you drive an EV the same way you drove an ICE vehicle with harsh acceleration, possibly excessive speed, then you notice the effect of that much more quickly in an EV because the the air resistance, wind resistance, drives down the charge on the battery faster. You need more energy to keep it going. 
So people tend to naturally just ease off a little bit on speed to maximize their range. A business, I know there are a few companies, uh, I don't know, there's Ember, the electric bus fleet, the opportunities Dundee and Glasgow, Dundee and Edinburgh. They, they gamified it to an extent for their drivers, for a challenge to see who can be most efficient on the journeys. And now they're stopping picking up passengers, they're traveling in a mix of motorways uh, and urban suburban routes. Different weather has different impacts. And because the drivers are very conscious of, they, they like to see who can get back to, to base with the greatest charge and yet still deliver on the timetable. You've got the balance between driving too slowly and just finding that happy medium. I'm not saying they haven't had accidents. I've, I've, I've seen the tail swing. That's just something you're never going to get away from. But because they're much more aware of their surroundings and planning for the traffic ahead, the way we should be expecting all PSV, HGV, and indeed all drivers to think, it really makes that focus greater. So again, back to the training, the efficient driving. Once you've taken the speed back a little bit in the efficient driving, from our point of view, there is a benefit there because people have more time to be aware of their surroundings and plan for things they see happening ahead of them. And I, th- I certainly think, you know, the emphasis that's coming through from yourself just now is very much about uh, embracing change, using time uh, differently and having different understanding uh, around about charging as opposed to seeing it as a, a downtime. It's it's you're doing something while the vehicle itself is charging. So there is that opportunity for efficiency there. I just wondered in terms of, um, you know, we've got alongside the EVs, uh, we've got things like e-bikes, e-motorbikes. Can you draw any comparison them and sort of the, the type the EVs as in Ember or uh, the, the family car? What other considerations are there, do you think, with respect to e-bikes and e-motorbikes? As an association, we, we like the idea of people moving out of cars and onto e-bikes. Uh, I, I, the active travel approach, I know our weather isn't necessarily the best, but the e-bike takes the edge off that quite a lot. On an e-bike, you're much more aware of your surroundings. You're traveling at a human speed. Uh, making people make the transition and not take cars into towns is something we like. And we like the idea of final mile deliveries using e-bike, cargo bikes. Again, just simply because it's generally safer. Uh, e-motorbikes are an interesting one. There are some really nice relatively low speed commuter bikes. The challenge we see is that where you have performance e-bikes, the performance is exceptional. And we're we're wary of that and having a firm position on that until we see more. There simply aren't enough of them to draw conclusions. And and I suppose within that mix as well, there's the e-scooter. If I'm thinking I'm just I'm just sort of pondering there. Um I've seen people locally uh, using uh, e-bikes. I've not seen uh, e-motorbikes as yet, but I have seen e-scooters and I've seen them scooting along here, there and everywhere. Where do they fit? Are they within the sort of um, short-term use um, or do you think that they may well emerge to be mainstream? They are really just in-town local journeys. Uh, They generally have a limited range. And it's a challenge because there's a behavioural aspect goes with the the e-scooters in in terms of we need, at this point from government, firm rules and understanding how they'd work. Within the trials, I think you you probably got the the statistics for London in particular, most of the accidents with e-vehicles in London have been e-scooters, not all of them from the rental fleet, some of them are the illegal private ones, because people are seating them as 
something more than they are. They're a means of getting around. They're not a toy. They're, they're not for showing off. And I, I find it interesting. I've been across in Europe and used them. And it's interesting in the cities across in Europe, the behavior is different. It's better. They use them appropriately. They slow down around people. I think that's something we need to work on. And I'm not entirely sure what way we go. But in terms of reducing the number of people in cars within the city, um, yeah, they're an absolute win. But with caveats, again, I don't have a, a clear answer for that. In terms of things like e-cargo bikes, that, that's just an absolute win. That There is always training required for handling vehicles that fast and potentially as heavy as e-cargo bikes. There isn't a clear route to that yet. So it's sort of like there are these emerging issues the road users have to be aware of um, and that the roads are a shared space and the whole piece about greater power and greater, greater responsibility. Um, could we take a couple of minutes just to dispel um, some urban myths? Um, EVs are not suited to long journeys. You know, that's where you mentioned range anxiety. That's something we can dispel based on what we've discussed today. So I've got a couple of journeys to highlight at the moment. Uh, the pole-to-pole team, Chris and Julie Ramsey, are currently driving. Um, it's not quite a stock Nissan Aria, uh, but the, the Nissan Aria currently between the magnetic North Pole and magnetic South Pole uh, in an electric 4x4. And that's one of the longest journeys on Earth. Uh, while another Dutch couple we're aware of are crossing Africa in a Skoda Enyaq. Now, both have large chunks of the journey where they have limited access to charging, but they can make it without much trouble. We already see people driving around the UK on a regular basis. So yes, it can be done even on a small battery car. Myself, for example, I drive a, an early generation Nissan Leaf with a, a small 30 kilowatt hour battery pack with about 75% range yet left. And I can drive from essentially Fife all the way up to Gearlock and Wester Ross with three stops. And it's only the three stops I would use to go to the toilet and buy food anyway. So it actually maybe adds about an hour, hour to my journey length just because I'm driving more slowly. Actually, safer. I'm actually traveling at the same average speed as the traffic. It makes no real difference. <laughs> about the myth that the grid can't support an increase in EV charging points? So that, that is from the myth. National Grid have come out and said many times that the national grid can cope. It's not necessarily going to cope by keeping doing the same things the same ways. There will be some minor behavioural changes, things like uh, time of use charging, you know, you charging the vehicle overnight outside peak hours or during the day when there's an excess of wind power available. These are already tools that are beginning to come through. Slightly more challenged down at the distribution network operator level. Nothing insurmountable. Smart charging and off-peak charging actually deals with most of it and avoids digging up roads because anything that avoids uh, that kind of infrastructure works a win. But most people charging at home at a lower, lower charge rate overnight while they have their, have their dinner if it's a big battery or just while they're sleeping, I think we reckon it's what, but around 30 miles a day is the average journey length. And for an EV, that equates to an hour, two hours charging. It, it's nothing. The grid will cope, but we will see people's behaviours modified, uh, probably using financial models by making charging peak more expensive or giving control to the grid operator to allow off-peak charging or when there's excess wind. Uh, we've already seen on things like the 
Octopus Agile tariff, people getting paid to charge their cars when there's excess wind, particularly true at the moment, and it's unlikely to be true forever. But you have that incentive there where you get access very cheap electricity. It's also the perfect time to charge your e-bike uh, out in the garage or somewhere secure. Although that's a much smaller amount, it's there. And one of the things that sort of ties in with that is we're looking at electrification of heat in the background. Sorry, slight tangent. But the grid isn't unduly worried about the electrification of heat as well. That's a, a smaller but more continuous load. They're not losing sleep over that. We have relatively large amount of time to prep for that. But actually making EV transition is going to come first. Uh, electric vehicle batteries are wasteful and they can't be recycled. What insights can you give to that myth? So EVs are hugely recyclable and battery recycling is actually something that we, we have a company in Germany, we have companies across in, in the Nordic countries and Italy who have EV recycling processes that are already achieving better than 90% of material recycling. Some of them report in excess of 98% material recycling. Their big challenge is they can't get feedstock because the batteries are lasting too long. Uh, so at this point, uh, particularly within the EU, they're moving to the ethical sourcing of material, uh, which actually ties in with recycling because uh, recycled material is obviously just going to be, present a, a smaller carbon footprint from the start. So yeah, fully recyclable is, is the aim already in the high 90s. And as we see EVs take off, we'll see this constantly loop around. And once we've taken the, the, the materials out the ground to make the batteries, actually we're ready at the point where the next generation of batteries will have a high percentage of recycled materials in them, assuming the ones we're using reach their end of life. So huge amount of positives there. So for people and organisations listening in, what first steps should they consider? They need to understand what their business actually does. So again, it's back to the point you raised earlier about data. They need to understand what their fleets do and then think about can I charge at home? Can employees charge at home? Can they charge at base? That, that That's relative straightforward. Uh, training, actually, it's just about encouraging efficiency in the first place because with efficiency, you get reduced speed. With reduced speed, you get greater awareness and more safety. And that's a, a, a really big tick point because they will then have a, the green image, which is lovely, and they'll be safer. And we would argue taking the EV route will Im Im improve safety with that little bit of extra training. So how do you think having these kind of conversations through the broader SCORSA network can really make a difference, Neil? It's a knowledge sharing exercise. And that seems to be one of the, the big challenges we've heard coming back. People don't know. They don't know where to ask. So having that first lot of information out where people can go, oh, that's interesting, and then go and look somewhere else. So there, there's various bits of information out there. Uh, the association can provide access to some of it. But just making that first step and going looking, Google, whatever your, your search engine of choice is, go and look. But Scorsa gives a platform where we can say, it's not just about green. The green part of it is fantastic. But actually, we have the option here to make things a lot safer, reduce the number of vehicle miles, vehicles on the roads, and encourage the active travel as well, even as part of work, especially when you start looking at things like the low emission zones coming in. If you have a final mile delivery service and you have a choice between taking a van in or having a couple of cargo bikes running around, we would say, please use the cargo bikes. And the cargo bikes can sometimes get a lot closer to the point of delivery, which actually may speed the delivery times up. 
So there's a, a real understanding of what the businesses are doing. And we know that it can't always work for everyone, but we think people really need to take a look and understand why it wins for them. Thanks so much uh, to our guest, Neil Swanson, director of the EVA Scotland CIC and a member of the Scottish Occupational Road Safety Alliance Seeing Group. And thanks to you for listening. And um, we'd love it if you could leave a review. It really does make the podcast easier for others to find. The Road Safety Podcast is produced by Fresh Air Production. I'm Karen McDonnell, and thank you for listening. 